Superbrain is a labour of love. Alas, no podcast can survive on love alone. We don't have a sponsor, so we need your support for Superbrain to stay alive and kicking. You can make a one-off donation by following the Support This Show link in the show or episode description. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Superbrain, the podcast for everyone with a brain. My name is Sabina Brennan and this week I chat to superb storyteller Sheila O'Flanagan about why she only writes books with female leads, her skillful ability to subtly provoke thought while engaging and entertaining her readers. We also chat about her childhood dreams, her forward-thinking father, the power of practicality, literary snobbery, banking manuals, floppy disks and the sky at night. You and I have never met before and I'm very grateful that you have agreed to come and be a guest. But you did a recent interview with Roisin Ingle in The Times and I just thought, gosh, I really like this woman. I really like her honesty and how you were speaking about very important things actually in the article, which I want to touch on later. But also then I laughed. I didn't know that we both live in this same leafy suburb, which I just thought, I, I mean, you know, living here, that's all anybody ever describes where we live at. I know, I just, I know. My, my road is not leafy at all. Really. <laughs> well, ours is. And actually, let me tell you that it's not the best of things because the leaf turns to mush. And, and well, actually, I know everywhere. because we have trees overlooking the back of our garden and the, the leaves yeah, come down. They it fall down. It's a disaster. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I have to say, I do love them. But anyway, one of the things you were talking to her, obviously, you have your new book out, which I really do want to talk to you about. I've had the privilege of reading it and really enjoyed every minute of it. Enjoy your two characters in it, Dira and Grace. Yeah. Dira actually is an unusual name. I'd never heard that before, is it? Well, actually, I, I read it years and years in a book I read when I was a child and it stuck with me. I thought it was a really nice name. I'd yeah. The character in the book was Irish, even though the book was not about Ireland or Irish right. people generally. And I said, it does sound like an Irish name. And it just stuck with me. And, and I, when I was thinking of what am I going to call this character, it just, popped it just up. seemed to be the right name for her. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it is because it's a little bit quirky and unusual. And she's kind of got an, she's an artsy kind of character. And just sort of playing back to some of the things that you spoke about in your article with Roisin and the book itself. And you were talking about some things really. And, and I think they're very important things. And actually, I've talked with another guest around similar issues is around when you write fiction that's mainly read by women, um, that there's a snobbery. Yeah that you write books that sell by the truckload. <laughs> I love this. You see, this is the win for me, you know. I mean, who sells the most books? Look, at the end of the day, your truck is with the fact that there is this sort of snobbery, you know. And I think actually what was said really in the article, which was horrifying to me, was that the Irish Times had not interviewed you for 20 years, despite the fact that you've 25 25 books. 25 yeah. books. They last interviewed you on your third novel. Yeah. Um, you've sold about 10 million books. Slightly less than 10. No, <laughs> I always no. get very edgy when people okay. say 10 because it sounds so many and it's about nine. But <laughs> that's oh, a whole million. Her, give, her, difference. Give, give or take a million. Yeah, well, I, it does. And right, yeah. it's make a difference. But nonetheless, it's millions of books. Yeah. And as a nonfiction writer, I can tell you that that's just uh, so enviable. Not, not as most people would think about the money. That's not it. I don't know about you, but certainly from my perspective, I write because I have information I want to share with people. And that only gets to them if they read the book. So for me, it's gosh, I wish it could reach more and more and more people. I mean, to be honest, what you get for each book doesn't add up to very much. No, it doesn't. People think you're rolling in it actually all the time once you've had a book published. But no, people do have kind of distorted ideas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I spoke to actually Ruth Gilligan, who also feels Mm -hmm. very strongly like you do 
about this irrational snobbery because for me anyway the only measure about how whether one book is better than another is the quality of the writing or the theme or or the topic the genre is irrelevant that's just whatever appeals to the reader she kind of has a flip thing she wrote she's the youngest Irish person ever to top the charts she wrote her first yeah yeah I know I know novel yeah yeah yeah, at 17 so I interviewed her for season one of this and we chatted we have a connection going back before that we used both act I played her mother in Fair City oh right years ago so she wrote that first book when when she was a teen and she followed up and she sold very very well but then as she grew up and matured she actually studied literature and she now lectures in creative writing and so she wanted to move on and explore literary fiction and write different works because her first books were actually about her life they were about teenagers not particularly her life but things that matter to her and she said that's how she views her writing is what is of interest to her so Studying literature means that literary writing is of interest to her. But she says what really bothers her is she's asked to go to and speak at literary festivals. And really what they want her to say is she's seen the light. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, You know, well, literary festivals are kind of are one of those things that you can take or leave to a certain extent because sometimes I'm not sure who they're catering for, you know? And are they there to make people feel good about their book choices or bad about their book choices? Do you know? I do. You have an interesting story to tell about a literary festival. Oh, yeah, do you well, want to say <laughs> Well, it was in the, in the interview, wasn't it? And so it was really just about... I think it was the first literary festival I ever went to. And and you must have been excited to go. I was right? tr- absolutely thrilled. Yeah. I thought this would be great. Um, I was asked along and it was outside Dublin and we were staying overnight and everything. I thought this would be fantastic. And um, like my book at that point was uh, number one in the charts. It was my second book. It was Caroline's Sister. Big doorstopper of a book, how I wrote it, I don't know. <laughs> um but I was really proud of it and pleased to be asked. But when I got there, the person who was moderating our section. Was it a man or a woman, can I ask? It was a woman. Was it? Yeah, yeah. Really, yeah, okay. I felt even yeah, worse yeah, about it. Yeah, yeah. But uh, she said to me, yeah, I'm introducing you and I don't know anything about you. And there was a bit of me that immediately said, well, you should have found out a little bit about me because you're you're in charge of this. But she said, tell me a bit about yourself and and what's your book called? And I told her and I said it was number one in the charts. And she said, yeah, we we don't count that. And I the just felt like I was about two inches yeah. high, you know, yeah. and I thought, well, why did you ask me if it, like, if, if, why am I here? You know, yeah. why, why am I here? Because she was so dismissive about it. The gas part about it was, as well, was that I was on a panel with a very literary writer and a poet, and I thought, oh my God. When I realised it, I went, oh my God. And we'd been told that we could read from our work and we could only read for 10 minutes exactly. And, um, my 10 minutes was down to about two minutes right. actually by the time I read way too fast because I was so shocked by all this and then they introduced somebody who, who hadn't originally been on the panel who was a local writer and they read for about half an hour Was that a male? Yeah Now I, I hate to gender this but I know from my own profession you'd be speaking at you know events or you know academic stuff and you would be told we have five minutes each we have ten minutes each yeah. and there would be timers and the women would be exactly exactly yeah. on time and I don't know time and time and time again the men would go and the timer would say your time is up I have more to say yeah. and just this I have this right I know <laughs> I know it, it, anyway th- it was just one of the more kind of horrible moments for me Yeah. but like you're saying about those festivals I was at another festival where we were asked what order do you want to speak in and, and I said I don't care but again we were told you have 10 minutes and I did my speaking thing and this guy said to me do you mind if I go last because I prefer to have a bit of time to calm myself down and I'm going fine. And of course he went last and 20 just minutes later we're just sitting there yeah. and I'm going, oh my God. So I kind of copped on to a few, yeah. a few things like that. Yeah, yeah, you do. You kind of learn and you, yeah, yeah. Now, I mean, I've not done anything like that, but uh, I say this sometimes to guess, uh, I don't know whether it's just me or it's part of the human condition, but whenever I'm researching my guests, which I'm horrified, I mean, that just shows that that person was totally unprofessional. Mm-hmm. I've moderated sessions before I do it. You know, 
you research the person's bio, you find something interesting about them, you know, you find what they're famous for or what they're good of. And that's part of your little intro of them. And I mean, that's just doing your job. Yeah. And I thought that too. I mean, that was my first thought was, why have you not found out something about me because I'm here? Interestingly enough, we were asked to another event once and there was a group of of women writers. I don't really feel that the literature or non-literature is a gender thing, really, although it is in a certain way. But it wasn't a great event. But anyway, we we were all there and we were mingling, as you do. It's one of these things where you host a table. Right. And uh, so we were mingling. And like there were a lot of really good, very strong, very well-known and good women writers there. And the only person who was asked to read from a book was the one man. No. Yes. And and actually, I left that event as soon as I could because I just thought, and I never, when I've been asked by the person who organised to do it again, I said, I said no. 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 A- anyway, it's an interesting thing that literary fiction and genre fiction, as though literary wasn't a genre of, of its own. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I just wonder why people feel it's important that a book should be maybe hard to read. Yeah. So like that, when I read, I'm always looking for commonalities you know that mm. that's what I'm saying about that you know what have I got in common with this person I suppose that's you know if you're going to have a conversation with someone you want to have something to speak about that's of interest or for me it's oh how how can I relate to that and and it's funny um, in academia it's very similar snobbery listeners to the podcast will know and I won't repeat it again but I didn't go to university till I was 42 which is something I want to talk <laughs> to you about in a little bit okay. uh, and so I came from a regular world and a regular life And so you're observing something that pretty much most academics have come right up the ranks through and haven't lived outside of that world. So there's incredible snobbery. There's also glass ceilings and big differences between males and females. And I love men. I'm not going to harp on on that. But, you know, where you do see there's gender issues and discrimination, you know, um, it is worth mentioning it. But there's that snobbery uh, there, too. I would see it in terms of academic publications and when I completed my undergrad and my PhD I followed what was supposed to happen which was write academic papers and I thought oh my god I can write oh my god I have a paper published Mm. and oh my god and then I kind of realised you know these are like trying to read another language. You know, there's this whole way you write it. And yeah. it's, it's almost about, you know, when I'd be reading papers, what is it they're trying to say here? You know, and it's like, why do they pick the most obtuse word on the planet when there's a perfectly normal everyday word that everybody would understand? Uh, and that's actually how I ended up doing what I do, which is actually taking all that dense writing and turning it into very easy to understand key messages for people that have paid for the research in the first place. Well, that's the kind of interesting thing as well. Is it's like you know, if you want somebody to to read and understand and empathise with what you've written in whatever way that is, whether it's fiction or non-fiction, but but get the drift of it. Why make it difficult for them? You know, and then maybe I, I kind of think to myself, okay, as I say that, it's myself. Well, you know, if you're writing a particular work of literature and you want to write it so that every word is a kind of a gleaming jewel yeah. and things like that, I understand that as a way of writing. I absolutely do. But for me, when I'm writing, the story and the characters are more important Mm -hmm. and and getting to know the character is more important than being dazzled by the brilliance of my prose. Your your prose and your yeah, and there I think Although there, I, um, at the same time I'm kind of thinking my prose is, is yeah. okay. Do you know? What I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I mean, I get that too. That some people, it's the love of language that drives them. You know, I think there's space for everything. Mm-hmm. I just don't think that one is particularly better than the other. Yeah. You know, I think you will find individuals who are better at what they've chosen than other individuals. But that's like saying watercolour is better than oil. Do do you know what I mean? That's exactly right. And and I mean, some literary fiction is desperate. Yeah. Do you know, you're reading, you're going, why have I even picked this up? This is terrible. And it's terrible writing and it's terrible full stop. Yeah. Some genre fiction is equally desperate. Yeah. But there are good in both and there's brilliance in both. Yeah. But you have to And clearly there's a hunger for because your books sell by the truckload, I will say it again. And actually, if you haven't, if you haven't read (laughs) The Women Who Ran Away, which is kind of an unusual title, actually, when you read the book, it really is a riveting read. It's really, really an enjoyable read. And, uh, you know, 
know, I will put my hand up here. My, I have to do a lot of reading for my work and a lot of reading for my writing. And because I went to university late, I had to catch up, on, you know, and a lot of that. So actually my fiction reading, my reading for pleasure sort of fell down a bit. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the joys of this podcast now is what's happening by accident is a lot of people who really interest me actually turn out to be writers <laughs> in a way. Um, comedians too have popped up, believe it or not. But I think it's because they're people who are interested in the human condition. And that's mm-hmm. what I'm interested in is the human condition. And for, but for me, it's from the brain perspective. You know, what has the brain got to do with how we behave and do these things? So I think it's a kind of a common interest. But my choice then, say, if I was to pick a book for pleasure would be psychological thrillers. Yeah, you know, that, yeah. w- that would be my thing. I kind of, you know, get me inside the person's head. Maybe if the person is, is going through something or maybe mentally unstable or, or whatever. But that's kind of what I would pick. So... I would not normally have picked, and I've said this to some other guests as well, this is what's lovely about this, is my eyes are being opened up to works that I thought maybe weren't necessarily for me. And what's really interested me about reading your book is the insight into the human condition, uh, very honest, but also very empowering. This particular book is about, to me anyway, it's my reading on it, is women going on journeys of self-discovery and helping each other to discover good and bad in themselves, which is good. And I see it as, it's funny, just bits of wisdom in it that I kind of say, right, I write nonfiction, but I'm trying to do the same as you just through a different genre. Because I'm now, as you would probably are already as well, I'm working up a picture outline for my next book. Mm-hmm. which is exploring some of the themes that you've written because I want to explore self and the construction of self and how we make self. And that's really what this book is about, about how these two characters have, in a way, seen themselves, but through other people's eyes are partly shaped by other people. I think possibly both of them were living their lives framed by other people. So suddenly they're in a situation where they're doing it themselves and making their decisions based solely on, on, on themselves. themselves. And um, albeit that Grace is following her late yeah. husband's wishes. So she's, yeah. she's still somewhat corralled, but she's still doing it on her own. I mean, she's driving in another country on her own, which she had which never done before. Uh, yeah, it's yeah. terrifying anyway. Yeah. <laughs> but she's doing it, you know. And Dira had thought her life was fine, but it was also based somewhat, you know, on what her partner wanted. Yeah. And now she has to make decisions for herself and only for herself yeah. as well. And um, so, yeah, so, so that was what I wanted to write about. Was, yeah, was, yeah. And was it's very, out there and yeah, and it's very thought provoking and it's kind of what I want to write about, but I will, I, I won't be writing fiction but I I have to employ some form of storytelling and anecdotes but it's funny you know I was not expecting when I picked up your book to find that it was actually exploring the same sort of thing that I want to explore in my book but in an empowering way they're both in empowering ways is, is what I'm saying mine is much more Obvious. <laughs> no, no, mine is more obvious. It, it yeah. will be on a, well, if it gets published, but it will be on a self-help shelf and it will be people looking to, whereas I think what's the wonder, because that's what I try to do is, I always say, say with my animations is, people don't want to be educated. They want to be entertained. And I always try to entertain people. So I'd make little animations and I want them to make them be entertaining because if they're entertaining, the educational message will just stick anyway. And I kind of think that's in a way with yours, not that you're trying to educate people, but there's liberating and important messages there, but they've just been entertained and they kind of... Well, yeah, I mean, I, I consider myself to be a storyteller and when I worked in finance, I used to come home and a bit like what you were saying, you know, my reading for pleasure is very limited. I had economic books to read. I had lots of other things to read. And when I sat down to read for pleasure, I wanted to read something that was enjoyable and entertaining, but well written, you know. Yes. And so... I don't write for a target market, even though, as we said, mostly women would read my books. But I don't sit down and say, who am I writing for in that respect? But I do think to myself, I'm writing for the person I was, which was somebody who didn't have that much time to read, but wanted to lose themselves in, in, in a, a book. Story. And they wanted it to, and I wanted it to be well written and I wanted the characters to be interesting. and I wanted the story to have a certain meaning. And so, so that's what I wanted to do. And then in terms of the books, I write now, I 
always will have the female lead character because I think there are there have been plenty of books of male lead characters and you know the women in them are always just a side issue yeah. to helping this guy on his yeah. journey you know and yeah. so I want my women to be having their own journey I put them into situations that I find thought provoking or interesting in a particular way and then I see how they work their way out of yeah. it and I want them to find sort of an inner strength that maybe yeah. they didn't know they had. Yes. So so that's the kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, and it is. It's, it's, and, and I actually really liked both of the characters. We were actually, I was talking in one of these other episodes to another writer and, and we we're actually talking about the importance that characters are likeable and but there is a trend in some novels to write characters that you don't need to like. And I, I, Yeah, I, I, they I, don't kind have of, to be likable but I think they have to be understandable. Yeah, maybe likable is not necessarily the thing. I suppose empathy or connecting. Yeah some way you have to care what happens for them absolutely yeah you know and without mentioning any names but reading a book at the moment I'm only halfway through it I will finish it for the sake of it but I really don't care what happens mm. any of the characters in it yeah. and, and I think that's a terrible thing in a book you know if it doesn't matter to you if yeah. somebody took it away from you and you, you wouldn't notice it wasn't there you yeah. know like I, re- I feel it's important to care about the outcome and to care about at least one of the characters how they're going to get absolutely it. and you so, have a few moments actually in yeah. the book where um, and I won't spoil it because it is kind of one of those books that that you could spoil it by saying um, certain things about it. But there are a few moments where I thought your characters were going to do the wrong thing. Yeah. Well, what I thought was the wrong thing. Yeah. But that's exactly, that means you've just, you know, it's great. You, you've yeah. got me hooked that I care enough that, no, yeah. don't do that. That's not a good idea. But I like that. I like the idea that a reader would be looking, would be invested enough in the yeah. character that they're, they're looking at what they're doing or where they're going and thinking, oh my God, don't do that. That's terrible. Yeah. You're, yeah. you're going to regret that. Yeah. Of your life, and or oh gosh, no, I've been there. Yeah, don't do don't that. Don't do that. Yeah. Or you know what? What would I do in that situation? And I think you know. I mean, I, human beings are storytellers. We make up stories about our own lives. That's how we make sense of the world. That's how your brain makes sense of the world. It's trying, always trying to find patterns. It's always trying to make connections because in doing so, it can function more efficiently. And so we make stories, and sometimes the stories that we make are wrong. They simply don't make sense, or they're because of previous histories or or whatever and that's part of what I want to do when I'm empowering people is to get people to question the stories that they've made about their own lives or about their own capacities and in a sense that's kind of what Ken Grace's husband yeah. in a way that's what he's got Grace to do yeah. is question her own story about who she is the partner the stay at home um, you know that he does X but actually he puts these challenges to her yeah. this quest really to test her own assumptions about herself it's and to test her assumptions about him too yes in certain, yeah that was kind of yeah 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 that was kind of interesting too I do think it's quite shocking that the Irish Times hadn't interviewed you for 20 years given that every time you have a book the publicists would have been contacting every single newspaper I'd yeah. say well, I, I, Yeah, I didn't expect them to I mean the Irish Times which is a paper I love and I contributed to for 10 yes. years of my, myself but um, they tend not to interview uh, writers of popular fiction Yeah They that's tend that's to veer towards the literary side with themselves And that's again that's that form of snobbery really in a way or, or a mis- Misconception that I their readers. I think it's yeah. a misconception that their readers wouldn't read something like that, which can't be true because so many people read the Times, and even if you don't read someone's work, it's always interesting to read interviews about successful people or about creative people because I would do that yeah. you know there might be a filmmaker or, or an interview and you kind of go gosh I'm interested in, in but you their- wouldn't expect to to know the work of everybody who is no. interviewed in, in a paper or a magazine no. of course not and it's interesting to have your eyes opened or you kind of go oh gosh that person sounds good I must look up their yeah, work yeah but um, I mean I suppose that's the whole point that you know that there's publicity but I am interested in the human beings and it, it's part of what this is about as well like you know how did they go from that to that you know how did they become successful what you know what on their journey you know we talk to people on this podcast about surviving and thriving in life you're definitely thriving um, as a writer but I do think that certainly from my research what jumped out at me um, and correct me if I'm wrong but that you survived something very challenging in your 
late teens, which was your father being terminally ill and then he died when you were 19. 19. And if I might ask, is there anything that you recall or, you know, was it writing, reading? Did something help you through that? Because that's quite a formative age to kind of lose. Yeah. um, Well, my two sisters were younger, you know, so, so um, to some extent, I think being practical is what helped me through that. Reading and writing probably didn't, you know, I don't think so at that time. I think just having to be practical and just focus on the the, there and now and, you know, getting through every day and having to do things every day probably probably, um, helped. I was very close to my dad. So uh, it was very difficult when he was ill because he was very, very ill. And of course, like we're talking about 50 odd years ago. No, 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 you're not that old. But it, I mean, we are talking about a long time ago and treatment wasn't as good as it yeah. is now. He was he was just really, really very ill. And actually, you know, the 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 one thing that I always felt was when he when he did finally um, pass away was just a sense of relief okay. because he'd been ill for so, so long. And maybe. So he was ill through your teen years. Oh, then. from I, I think he was first diagnosed when I was about 15. OK. So he'd been ill all that time, although he, you know, he would go into remission and would be all really hopeful. But right. So I think, can I ask what? It was stomach cancer. He died. Oh no! Right. So yes, back then, yeah, it was yeah. just dreadful. Yeah. Yeah. My grandmother actually died of. Um, she had bowel cancer, and yeah. you know, kind of went in. They kind of opened her up and kind of closed her again. But actually, rather interestingly, um, she'd been. The doctor used to tell my mother that um, she was a hypochondriac. Just tell her to eat more because she would go with pain. You know, yeah. and that's actually something I've written about in my latest book. Is that it takes on average women four years longer than men to get a diagnosis. Cause yeah. We're not believed yeah. because we tend yeah. to tell stories about yeah. it's interesting we tell stories about our symptoms and men come in with, with the list with, <laughs> yeah yeah but we're not believed yeah. anyway yeah. which is interesting so yes that must have been awful and dreadfully painful and terrible to watch him in pain yes it was actually it was really yeah. hard I used to go in and do my homework sitting beside him um, but do you know in all honesty I've probably blanked a lot of that at this point Okay. And not deliberately, you know, but it's a blob of time. Right. A blob of time. And it was just my dad was sick. Yes. And I don't. And nothing else. And really nothing else. You know, it's just yeah. my dad was sick and that, that was it. And actually, because we had this shop in the Ivy Markets at the time. Right. Um, and that was our family business. And okay. we were more concerned with surviving. Yeah. Yeah. And my mum was kind of working in the shop for a while and then we had to sell the shop. And so... Like I said, it was all those practical things. Yeah, really. I think in one interview I read with you, you do mention that that, and I I thought it was really really sound advice. I can't remember, and I'm paraphrasing your words, and I wouldn't attempt to even go anywhere near your wonderful way with words. But I can't undo it. Mm-hmm. You know what's happened has happened. So yeah. right. What can we do now? Move on. It's, so. There's no use crying over spilt milk. Yeah. It just is. And, and I mean, I think that's wonderful advice across life. We spend far too much time in the past, yeah. you know, worrying about stuff we did or else worrying about things that might never happen. Um, shit happens. Well, it does. I mean, life is like that, you know. And, yeah. and, you know, maybe again, when you're writing, you can bring the emotions that I might have had okay. about something like that, but into a different situation. Yeah. I had wondered about that then, whether there was any connection with Ken and your dad and decisions that Ken had made in the novel. Um, no, not really. But I was very conscious of somebody who was ill and who knew they weren't going to get better because we had those conversations. My right. dad and myself. So your dad he knew he was oh. not, was not going to get better. We, but it was obvious. Do you know, it really. Yeah, was. yeah. Um, so I'm conscious about that about people that know that you're in a situation. And how do you deal with that? And again, people deal with it in different ways. Yes, you know. So um, I think maybe I brought some of that emotion into it, but not on a conscious level. Yeah, I know, but I, I think there's a couple of things that struck me when you were writing about that and that was when Grace talks about I, I don't think it's giving very much away to say that Ken had motor neuron disease yeah. I mean it's the premise of the outset of the yeah. novel really but Grace at one point after Ken has had a diagnosis says oh motor neuron disease that's what Stephen Hawking has mm-hmm. and you talk a bit about it and I thought it was really very interesting and very true um, you know that people living through terrible, challenging, chronic conditions, diseases, cancers, whatever, are often expected to be wonderfully brave. (laughs) 
Yeah. You know, I, I thought yeah. it was a very kind of insightful thing to bring into yeah. the story. It's like that one where they say you're fighting whatever disease it is. And, you know, it's, and then when you have died, you have lost the fight as though it's your own fault. Yeah, yeah. And I, yeah. That, I, I think that that is a terrible thing to put on people in a lot of ways. You know, if you're ill and, you, yeah, you're dealing with it, fighting it is a kind of a... It's a different emotional language to use, do you know. Yeah, and I think it comes, I mean, we do use, it is used in medicine. You know, we talk about our immune system fighting, you know, invaders to the bodies or whatever. So it is a language. It's a whole kind yeah. of cultural language that we've employed. So it's hard to move away from it. And I actually, understand that. But I think when you're talking about a person, yeah. you know, their battle. Um, yeah. And sometimes people do use it for themselves. But, you know, I, I always feel that it's putting a lot of baggage on somebody that if you're depressed or if it's not working or if you're feeling bad, it's on you. Yeah, no, and I mean, I do think that it just kind of reading around your work as well is that your characters don't have to be super achievers that sometimes it makes women particularly look at and, and you feel you fall short all the time mm. because how come they can do all that and I'm struggling with this one thing it can actually yeah. be very soul destroying to see that because we all have our own little battles or big yeah. battles and here I am using the language again you see it's yeah. so kind of ingrained and but but they are well, they, we all have something to overcome or we all we, ha- yes. we all have challenges do you know and one of the things that I like writing about is why do different people react differently to certain things you know why when in one case, you know, say um, a marriage is broken up and the, the wife just gets on with it and the, yeah. maybe they should find out her husband has an affair and one wife just goes, well, right, that's it, you're out. And I'm closing all the doors and she, she just moves on and yeah. somebody else goes to pieces. What makes them react differently and why why is that? So I, I like exploring that. Do you know, I like looking at what makes people do different things. But you see, that's exactly why I do what I do. <laughs> it's the exact same thing. You know, that's... Except my- I can make it up. <laughs> You're you can make it up. Yeah, but I can. Well, part of, what, part of what we do is kind of make it up. I suppose you could call theories yeah. you know, around that. So psychology is trying to understand the human condition and, and also things when it comes, because what you've just talked about there is sort of resilience. How come some women are resilient mm. or men when something happens and then others aren't? So I'm actually interested in finding out what is that difference and can we make this person who's not resilient more resilient? Yeah. So that's kind of what, what I'm kind of interested in doing. And I think you do the same really in your books. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Now, just going back to your dad again, because I read somewhere and he sounds very, very forward thinking. I'm trying to figure back. It was probably 30 something years or maybe <laughs> not the 50 that you, yeah, that you I know think. that I blithely said. Yeah, yeah. that you blithely said. Um, uh, but he was obviously very ahead of his time because you said he had three daughters and if you said you wanted to be an astronaut he said well go work hard study for it there was kind of no limiting we're fairly close in age and I certainly know my father would have a lovely man and I'm very fond of him and all the rest but he would have had Mm. he would encourage me to use my brain because he identified with my brain in the same that I had a similar brain to me he's a very honest man he'd say oh you have my brain the others don't (laughs) you know like but uh, he still would have had very 
very old-fashioned ideas around women. After I had my two kids in my 20s, I decided I wanted to become an actor because I wanted them to pursue their dreams or whatever. And I mean, he still thought that acting was for women was a profession that was only one remove from <laughs> prostitution. Really? Yeah, yeah. You know, he would have had that kind of mindset. So for me, it probably doesn't sound forward thinking to women of today to hear that their father said this, but I can see that, yeah. that at the time he would have been very forward thinking. And I want to ask you two things because you've spoken of childhood dreams to be a number one world tennis player. <laughs> I want to ask you about that. And number two, to be an astronaut. astronaut yeah. So the tennis player, tell me about that. Well, I like I am a bit sporty. I wasn't sporty as a child, really, because I had asthma and that kind of oh, precluded right. me. I still have asthma, but, you okay. know, and it kind of precluded me from doing a lot of the running around games because I would end up wheezing or whatever. But tennis, I not that you can stand there and just hit the ball, but, you know, to start off, people are just hitting the ball to you. And I was quite good at it. Right. And um, I loved watching tennis and I loved Billie Jean King, who's like just a hero to me because she was yeah. so amazing. She was just a great player and she told it like it was. Yeah. And so I wanted to be her. Right. Um, so I thought, well, she's a number one tennis player. I would like to be a number one tennis player. We had no tennis courts anywhere near our house. Come here, though. Did you play tennis? No, I didn't play tennis. No, no, no. But on the street. Oh, on the street, yeah. So I don't know about your road. I'm actually from around the corner, believe it or not, Kinkora Avenue. But we had, you know, the concrete roads where you had the black tar. Down down the middle, yeah. So we would play Wimbledon on the street because you had the four squares. So we used to play that. That and show jumping. (laughs) Didn't do the show jumping. Um, We sometimes played tennis over my mother's washing line. Lord, right, okay. Um, but we had a, a wall at the back of our house, and I used to just play against, against the it. wall. And I would be Billie Jean King, or I would be Chrissy Everett, or Virginia yeah. Wade, or somebody. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I would practice different shots against the wall. But there were no tennis courts anywhere near us, and no chance of me ever playing right. tennis or being brought to play tennis because right. my parents wouldn't. You know, what is she talking about? Yeah. I wonder, is it just thinking back? That's why I asked you the question. I bet you she's going to name all those, and you know, because we did. We went, there wasn't a lot. I suppose, but you did watch yeah. tennis that, you know, yeah. for Wimbledon, it all stopped and everybody watched it and talked about it. But I suppose just thinking back now, I'm just looking at it. There wouldn't have been many women that we could kind of look up to as being seen as top of their profession or in, or in sport or in and anything, really, when you think no. about it. And that was one of the things when I went into my job in the central bank and I looked around and all of the managers were men yeah. and all of the economists were men and all of everybody yeah. that wasn't a clerical officer or something was a man bar one or two women and well two women who were in you know not bad uh, positions both of them were unmarried and a bit older and there was kind of jokes about them going home to their cats and things yeah. like that and then there was one married woman and she was the first I think the first woman who had been able to stay on after the marriage ban yeah. and a lot of people would say of her like why you know yeah. why is she doing this yeah. and um, and it really irked me that her boss was a guy who was way way inferior to her in yeah. terms of ability and everything but like he had this position and okay she was younger and and suppose she you know ultimately I think she may have overtaken him I I hope but like there were guys there who were just they just were promoted and it does my head in you know when people talk about promoting the best person for the job and women shouldn't think they should be there as a token woman and stuff where where I'd look at guys I worked for and thought the only reason you're there is because the system was geared up for you to be there yeah yeah I left school in 1979 so I mean I think the marriage bar only stopped in 74 or something yes, ridiculous yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, I mean, it had gone when I joined the Central Bank, which was a couple of years before that. It had gone, but most of the women that were getting married were still leaving because yes. they got the grant to leave, which is actually basically just your pension entitlement. But the grant paid for all the deposits for the houses. Right. So and, not and to leave meant giving that up. Like even when I had my first child, which was 89, you know, there was still talked about whether will you stay or will you go after yeah. you have that child. And even my mum sort of minded my kids and she would have been of the opinion that women should give up work until it was her first grandchild. So it became an opportunity for her to have a grandchild. Mm. So then her whole her whole <laughs> belief system changed utterly because it mattered to her. But um, you did exceptionally well, actually, in banking. I thought it was funny to read that you said your typing 
course, was one of the best things. You can yeah. fly through your novels. Yeah, yeah, it was the most useful thing I ever did. I mean, I did all those banking exams and I did a whole load of other things yes. and actually learned to type. Was the best. Yes, I, I did pensions exams. I feel your pain. I, I worked when I left school. I went to work in a life insurance company. I spent yeah. 15 good years of my life thinking of Dare in the book. I gave some of the best years of my life to an insurance company. Yeah. But um, yeah, I, I mean, I was thinking that. I mean, you, you talk about actually writing banking training manuals yeah, yeah. and if you could make those sexy well then you could write a book and I just thought that's brilliant Well I doubt that I actually made them sexy but I did make them at least a bit more readable which yes. I you know when you were talking about technical data and stuff like that I mean I don't know why it has to be so difficult yeah. to read so I hopefully I made them more readable and yeah, yeah. I do know that and I lectured for a while in finance and I'm, some of the students got back to me afterwards yes I got my exams thanks very much <laughs> But I often wonder I was when I read that are there some of the those manuals there written by Sheila. It never said my name was never on them no. actually. No, no, no. There Gosh. Was just, they were just... And it should um, be. So which brings me to something else that I do want to talk to you about as well which is like myself you didn't go to university mm-hmm. when you left school. Certainly when I was doing my research one of the articles you had said I mean you've been pretty much writing a book a year for 25 years which is no mean feat. <laughs> but I think I read and, and again I'm paraphrasing that you said you couldn't see yourself doing a book a year forever that you would like to do something that I, I can't remember whether you said challenged you or something different and you mentioned going to university mm. uh, and studying maybe astronomy um, which is linked to your desire yeah. to be an astronaut bringing us back to the childhood dreams Yeah I mean I, I just kind of thought I'd like to study something just for the fun of it, you know, yeah. and not not anything that you know that I, that I was ever going to use in in my life. I'm not sure I see astrophysics or something like that as for the well, fun inter- of it. But interesting, with two of my nephews studied physics Did in they? in um, in college, yeah. But I I kind of thought to myself maybe that would be just too challenging, you know, for my relaxy years. Um, so I'm kind of thinking I might like to do because I have a house in Spain. Uh, I might do something about Spanish culture and and, ah. and also maybe you know spend some time brushing up my Spanish and making my Spanish better. So I have to say that going to university as a mature student is brilliant. (laughs) You have to do it. You have to make sure here I am giving you advice here. (laughs) (laughs) The only thing I would say is make sure that you pick a subject that fascinates you. Well, that's that's the thing. That's that's it. Just pick a subject that fascinates you. That's the thing. We see astronomy does fascinate me. Gosh, there's there's so much in it. Do you know there is I think so in, much in it? Yeah, and I'm not sure that what I want is in the university course. Yes. Whereas Spanish culture and Spanish history fascinates me as well. It's so really, here's really th- interesting. Here's an interesting thing that you can do. Well, certainly when I went now, it's good. Gosh, it's a while ago now since I went. 2004, I went. You know, I went to university by accident. I've talked about it before on this, so so I won't delve into it now. But there's a lot of kids, school leavers, and they go to university because they have picked a course. You know, even things like medicine, you know, because they can get the points or they're mm. smart enough or whatever. And they've actually no idea what they're going to be studying. Um, so I did choose psychology, um, but I didn't particularly know what it was while I was making the choice before I actually made it you know I read about it and I read what I would learn each year and what and I, I could just feel the excitement you know in my stomach in my gut I, oh in year one I learn about that and then I learn about that and then I, oh my god year three they do oh god you know so I was just excited reading what the course structure was going to be when I gave up the day job I became an actor and I did that because it's the human condition that interests me and that's so psychology was kind of taking it that that next step. But in doing the undergrad, I did my undergrad degree in Maynooth, actually. And I think this happens in certain other universities as well. I got on the psychology course, but you had to do two other subjects because in case you fail the one you want to be your major. So that's a way to get a feeling, you know, that if you could do Spanish language, culture, physics and something else or astrophysics, you know, that you can kind of get the feel of it. I mean, I have done quite a bit of study of astronomy anyway, you know. Yeah. Oh, so you've done it for fun. Oh, yeah. Oh, well, then. Yeah, I have. And um, and I've gone out to various observatories at various times. As and well. you have a telescope I in your home. have a telescope at home. And the clear skies, are they really oh, well, clear skies for you? Yes, they're, they're clearer, but the 
there's still too much light pollution I don't because okay. you really need to be somewhere where there is no light pollution I last year when we could travel myself and my husband went down towards the south in Fuerteventura we stayed in a place where there was very little light pollution oh my it's god it's amazing isn't it oh, I mean, the difference oh, that it makes you can't heavens uh, yeah. you know literally going oh my god yeah, yeah I know and I think it's, it's such a shame that we can only see a few pinpricks of stars now yeah. because I remember when I was younger and you could see them all and it does give you a sense of how unimportant yeah. you are, you know, when you look up at all that. But now we look up and you don't really... No, you don't see that. You don't no, get that sense of, of wonderment. And you actually have a moment like that I do. in, in your book. I do, yeah. Dara I do. actually looks up yeah. at the stars, one of the places they go on their journey. Yeah, and yeah because there are places in the mountains yeah. where there's no light pollution. And Yeah, yeah. And actually that's what I loved about your book actually I love when a book takes you on a journey but also stirs memories from your own past Mm. and your book did that quite a lot for me the stars one you know was one of them Um, and also made me think you know I mean it's a thought provoking book you know thinking about your life but um, the windy road one was one I've been on those (laughs) windy roads and that's scary and And I remember uh, I was very brave so I really admired Grace always when we go on holidays my husband would do the driving and I have no desire to do it and I would be the navigator but I did go to Cannes once to the film festival and we were at that time thinking we might buy somewhere and I went to visit the place myself which meant I had to rent a car and drive and yes I, I don't know how I didn't kill myself because I came off a motorway and went the oh, wrong yeah, way the down once yeah, sometimes yeah. but yes there was that drive up and I went oh my god and then how am I going to come down like it was like oh will I be stuck kind of but actually once you do it once you've done it once you yeah, yeah. and it's a great oh, sense yeah. of achievement you know the yeah. fear of these things and you, and you do it is that book you know feel the fear and do it anyway yeah. or Nike have got the best slogan ever it's just, just do, do it, it. Yeah. and I think you're kind of just such an inspiration the way you did just do it you just kind of gave up the day job I mean you wrote while you were doing the day job which was pretty I did for a while challenging yeah. too yeah. mainly because I was so unsure of myself of whether I could do it or could finish it. But at this point you had a few books written. Well I had a couple of now I have to say the first couple of books which were published by an Irish publisher you would not be able to give up your day job. Do you right. Know, you just couldn't. It, um, oh in terms of sales and they were just yeah, published it, in the yeah. Irish market sort of thing. Yes. Right, okay. So when the UK publisher approached me then I said okay. Right. Okay and I can't do both things but I could have given up the day job after the first book was published in Ireland by the Irish publisher but I just thought to myself do you know I, I, maybe I, I wasn't I don't know whether I wasn't confident enough in myself but I wasn't confident in them as publishers. Okay. So That's interesting. Yeah. So I, I kind of thought to myself do you know what I'll carry on working I'll, but the thing was once I started writing I couldn't actually stop writing either. Right. So, so I was working and writing and working and writing but you know and So you found your joy which is yes, which I is did. lovely. I did. You know you've, yeah. you found that thing that time stands still and I feel fortunate that I've kind of found that in a way too yeah. and I also would love to help other people try to find yeah. their joy. What comes to mind in terms of when you're talking about that if I cast myself back to those times when we worked you in the bank and me in, in an insurance company is permanent and pensionable comes yeah. to mind. Yeah. You know I mean I would have been told how fortunate I was that I had a permanent pensionable job yeah, and actually yeah. they're unheard of now actually that, that's are. kind of gone again and I have to say that those I've been to some retirement dues from, for some of my friends and when I hear of the pension that they're retiring with I do go oh my god <laughs> why did I throw all that away um, <laughs> oh, but, but no, I don't I do, no yeah, I don't yeah, yeah. but you know you do kind of and they say oh, well you know this is it you're going to be getting this amount a year for the rest of your life you wow know? I'm thinking, wow. Yeah, wow. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I don't have the permanent and pensionable um, anymore either. I jacked that in when I was in my early 30s to pursue well, an acting career. Same as myself. Yeah, yeah. And did take that risk. Um, but you have to do that because... I, I do think so, yeah. You can't stay doing something that, to, to me, finance, I was doing okay in it, but it was a job. You know, I didn't get up every morning going, whoa, hey, yes. thank God I'm going into the, yes. the office. I, I never, you know, so so once there was even the remotest possibility of being able to um, make a living out of writing, even though at that point 
I wasn't sure because, you know, yes, we had a couple of books published in Ireland, but would they translate over to the UK? I had yes. no idea. Would yes. make enough and Ireland is a great book buying audience, but it's still a very, very small. But it's still very small. You wouldn't make a living solely yeah. published in Ireland, really. Yeah, yeah. And I'd be very fortunate to you. Yeah, I hope. I mean, gosh, with what's happened with COVID and everything, I mean, it's very challenging to know what's going to happen with. Well, yeah, and it's been a nightmare. It's been a nightmare for the authors. It's been a nightmare for booksellers. I mean, Easons have closed their stores in the north, which is terrible because they are big booksellers in the north. Yes. You know, they sold a lot of books. I mean, I think here a lot of the smaller indie bookshops are doing better than they thought because they've managed to reach out to their readers. And, and they, people were buying. I saw a lot of that them, on yeah. social media, people saying buy a book, you yeah. know, buy so it there online. Was so, so there was some. But having said that, that's reaching out to their readers. But that's yes. still not the same. As that's not expanding either. Past your yes. shop and, and a lot of them, a lot of bookshops depend on footfall and they have a book in the window and you say, oh, I've heard about that. And there it is. I'll go in and buy it. So it's very tricky times. Yeah, yeah. But I still think the only thing is people used to say that Kindle and all those things would put an end to paper books. The thing is, I think it's a fundamental need of humans to have stories. I think it's how we solve problems. It's how we avoid problems. It's how we entertain ourselves. It's just so fundamental to who we are to have that talent to be able to provide that for people, I think, is is wonderful. I feel very fortunate to have been able to talk to you and kind of pick your amazing brain. When I speak to my guests, I like to ask them, you know, what advice or something that you've maybe lived by in terms of around surviving and thriving in life. I mean, I know you mentioned around surviving. It's just, you know, being practical. But in terms of you have thrived as a, as a writer, but also yeah. in your life, reading about you and researching you, I have found each interview very interesting mm-hmm. and very honest. And, and for me, and it's funny, there was another commonality I found. Honesty is the most important thing for me in any interaction or relationship. And you said you value in one of your interviews that honesty yeah. is one of the things that you that you value. And I think you're very brave in current climate that you're still just being honest in your interviews because I certainly feel that I have to be, and I don't, you know, I'm not famous person like you but I still even just in my daily interactions you know say on social media or whatever mm. I feel that I have to curtail I don't have to curtail what I say but I feel that I do because I have become afraid of the consequences now that's not something I felt you know even five years ago well I think social media has become a bit of a cesspit you yeah, know so I agree so I mean I think curtailing yourself on social media is more self-preservation yeah. than not being honest because like I, I do think it's important to be honest. I you know when it comes to interviews and stuff, I'm not trying to create a persona for myself. I don't you care. You just are yourself. It's just like if you ask me something I'll answer it and if I don't know the answer I'll say I don't know the answer and I don't see why I should pretend to be something else. Oh I'm I not. don't no no you know I, but like if if people do that and obviously there I are think people some who people do, that, do yeah yeah but you know I'm not I'm not an influencer or whatever it is yeah. now. I'm just But you see you book. are your books influence people but you're well, not yes. that other type of in, not, influencer yeah I'm, yeah I'm not that and I'm you're not, not selling other people's stuff or you know no, it, it's, and it's, I'm not it's trying your, to say have a lifestyle like mine or have a life like mine or you know I'm a, actually quite an ordinary person yes do you know and so if somebody asks me a question I'll answer them and you see where that goes and, and then you're left to the mercy at the sub well, well that is headlines. one of the problems alright <laughs> <laughs> but we I have a whole podcast on this yeah with Hilary Freeman oh, right. she writes young adult and she's also a journalist freelance journalist in the UK but basically She's been the victim of the sub-editor's headline. I've been the victim of the sub-editor's headline. You were quite recently the victim of the sub-editor's headline that I really think we should, you know, have a petition that says (laughs) at the top of an article, article written by, (laughs) (laughs) sub-editor, heading written by. But I totally got, you know, what you were saying about Sally Rooney, that she's such an amazing writer now. Imagine what she's going to be like when she's older. about that is that our conversation about that was about 30 seconds yes. at most of our of the entire interview and we were just we were actually talking about life experience in writing so that was why I was saying 
she's only in her 20s. Yeah. She's writing. It's young writing. She's writing about her 20s. But look at, do you know what? But I, it, it, it is the truth. And, and I think, you know, it's important that it was said that the subheading was really just what I'd call clickbait. For listeners, basically exactly that in the article, Sheila described how, you know, she's a great writer and gosh, she'll be amazing then as she gets <laughs> life experience and wisdom yeah. and explores other themes yeah, and, and, yeah. and other topics sort of in a I can't wait sort of way. But I think the heading said something on the line of... It said she'll be a super writer when she's older. She will be a super writer when she's older. I looked at that myself and said, oh my God. (laughs) But what can you do? I mean, I've seen those things myself for for mine, you know, misrepresenting what you said. And uh, oh, there's that horrible sick feeling in your stomach. Do you get that? Are you good at saying... Well, I felt that because, not for myself, but I felt, uh, you know, for Sally Rooney because it's so patronising. Yes. And I thought to myself, this girl reads that, she'd be saying, who is that patronising old cow? And what she what she talking about? <laughs> I was imagining, you know, some relative saying, "Have you read this? What this old witch is saying about yeah, you?" Yeah, yeah. And of course, then it was the old against the young th- thing. All of that which, sort. Of, yeah. all of that sort of thing. But fortunately, most people who read the piece, yes, actually said, and and there was quite a few people that said, "Oh, that's a terrible headline. Yeah, yeah, that's so yeah. un, unrepresentative." It's just, it's just that a lot of people don't realise that the journalist, or even if you write a piece yourself, an opinion piece, you have no control yeah, over the headline. over the headline, um, which is really quite shocking. One or two things were almost finished and I'm, I've, I've enjoyed every minute of this. I hope you have. But you you had said something that I read that I thought was really rather interesting. I don't know if I have it here, but you said that with life and over experience, you learned what to say no to mm. and what to say yes to. Um, well, possibly that. that I'm better at saying no to. I don't always say no, but, you know, I think when you're younger, you're trying to please everybody all the time. And it's really hard to filter out the things that you want to do or things that you think are interesting to do and things that you feel you should do um, or that you're being obliged to do. And I am better now at kind of looking at something and assessing whether I'm doing it out of... I mean, and I will still do things out of a sense of obligation, for sure. But something that I feel actually this is not for me and I am not going to do it. And I feel much better about that. And and that's not just about book things or worky type things. It's about everything, everything in life, whether it's family stuff or whether it's something with friends. Or You know, when people say, oh, you know, go to the party that you don't want to go to. Yeah. And instead of trying to come up with some big, long excuse or then deciding in the end to go anyway, I kind of will say, you know, what, that's not going to be my thing and I'm not going to go. And I'll yeah. say that out straight to somebody and say, I can't go. I, yeah. I don't want to go. Um, I hope you don't mind. And do you think that's something that has come with, because we're bombarded with such negative images of growing older, that that's something that comes with, with growing age. older? Oh, I think so. Yeah. I think you don't care as much. because well, you, you re- care more about yourself, I think. When but, you realise well, that somebody else's opinion of you doesn't really actually yeah. matter. And also they'll have gone away and they'll have forgotten about it and you're still beating yourself up over something. Yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm better at that. And I'm also more confident about saying yes to things. Although I, I did learn that in banking because the guys who were, who maybe would not be qualified to do something would always say yes to yes. an opportunity. They would never say no, no matter whether they had a clue or not. Um, and whereas the women would kind of wait to see if they could do it. But like I did learn that in finance and it was one of the most valuable so you, lessons. Oh, so you learned that quite early. I only learned that a few years ago. No, I'm better at saying yes than at no. Right. Learning to say no was the thing that I learned more recently. OK, so I learned, I always found it very hard to say no. I still do in some regard. Mm. I'm getting much better at it. And I just did some work on myself in that regard because, you know, no. Yeah. Life is too short. I haven't got, you know, yeah. I haven't got loads of it to spare. Yeah. I want to make sure it's doing things that speak to what I want to do. So I would have said loads of yeses before, but I would have said no to the wrong things. Yeah. You know, um, and I think it's exactly what you're talking about is, uh, and I've said it a few times if I've been on panels now, even though I only learned to do it myself maybe five or six years ago, is to say yes first and then figure out how to do something because actually you may well find that you are perfectly qualified to do it. I mean, the person wouldn't probably have asked you to do it in the first place if they didn't think that you could. It's just you have such a a limited experience, you know, feeling of yourself or sense of yourself that you don't realise. I think that's a female thing. I do too. I think that's a female thing. And that's 
that's why I'm saying I did learn it when I was working in finance. I had to take it out of finance and adapt it to my life outside and my writing life, where, which was a new thing for me. And, and obviously I didn't know the group. I didn't know the dynamic. I didn't know anything. But I had written a book, but it was a kind of now it would be a young adult book. You okay. know, and I had sent it off to, to a publisher and they called me back and said, we really like your writing but it's too young for us. So if you were to write another book, we might be interested in publishing it. Could you do that? Okay. And I said, yes. Right. And then when I put the phone down, I went, (laughs) yeah, I said, how am I going to do this? I I wrote this book. This was my book. Yeah. And um, now what am I going to do? I was curious to know when I read that, because I I, I did read that about you. I I was curious to know what the book they said sort of no to. But now that makes perfect sense. It was a young adult book. It just wasn't for their publication. Did it ever get published as a young adult? No, it didn't. And I actually, because it's so, so long ago now, it was on um, floppy disk. (gasps) Oh, my goodness. So. (laughs) Oh, wow. Well, I don't think I have the flop. They might be up in my attic. I don't know. And I don't think yeah. there's anything. That oh, somebody, somebody, when you're gone, yeah. when you're gone, a hundred years from now, someone will find attic. this floppy disk. Oh, my God. Sheila Flanagan's long lost work that was never published. Wouldn't that be lovely? <laughs> well, it wouldn't matter anything to the, yeah. um, to, the, to the rest of us. Oh, look, it's been an absolute joy for me. Thank you for spending time. I did ask you and then I never let you answer, which is terrible. But you've probably sort of covered some of it any advice that you would give to people you know for surviving challenges or thriving in life well maybe saying yes to things that are challenges Uh, you know even if you're doubting yourself still say yes it's a bit like just do it isn't it it's the same thing because nobody will ask you a second time if you say no yeah so so that's maybe a challenge and maybe the other thing is is, is really don't worry about the calories and stuff so much you know? oh, just, oh, just oh. chill chill on the <laughs> well I'll just say on that note thank you so much I could have talked all afternoon it's been an absolute pleasure Sheila Flanagan thank you don't forget to tune in on Thursday for another Super Brain Booster Shot I've included links to Sheila's website and her brilliant book The Women Who Ran Away in the show notes for this episode My name is Sabina Brennan and you've been listening to Superbrain, the podcast for everyone with a brain. You can follow me on Twitter at Sabina underscore Brennan or Instagram at Superbrain Podcast or at Sabina Brennan. If you love the show, please like it, share it, rate it and subscribe to it on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, say yes, just do it and don't count the calories. 